Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. If I asked you to think of a famous battle, what comes to mind? Was it Napoleon's battle at Waterloo, or maybe the Battle of Gettysburg? No matter what battle you thought of, it will no way compare to the battle we will hear about today as John continues his series on the book of Revelation with his message, The Battle of Armageddon. It's impossible to know for sure how many battles have been fought in the history of the world. But one thing is certain, there has never been a battle like the Battle of Armageddon. Human history is marching towards this battle, and everyone on the planet will be on one of two sides, either the Lord's side or the enemy's side, the Antichrist side. And so today, I want us to think about the Battle of Armageddon. Now, I want to show you a picture of the Valley of Megiddo in northern Israel. This is a different angle from the one we saw last week, but this, nonetheless, is where the Battle of Armageddon will take place. And before we get very far into the message today, I want to give an overview of this battle, and I want to do that by making four statements, and I'm going to give them to you really fast, and so you probably won't have time to write them down, but just as I say these things, just think about it, and I think it will give us an overview And I think it will help us to be ready for what we're going to be studying this morning. First of all, the battle of Armageddon will take place at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, the rapture of the church is not the second coming. In the rapture, Jesus leaves heaven, comes to the air. We meet him in the air. He takes us to heaven. When that happens, the tribulation begins on the earth. That will last for seven years. And so, for those seven years... We will be in heaven with Jesus, but at the end of those years, we will leave heaven and come with Jesus back to the earth. And so, the first coming of Jesus Christ happened when he was born in Bethlehem. The second coming will take place when he comes back to the earth, and that will happen at the Battle of Armageddon. Second thing I would say by way of an overview this morning is that this battle, the Battle of Armageddon, will officially end the Great Tribulation. And so when the battle takes place, those seven years of suffering on the earth will be over. This will end the Tribulation period. The third thing I would say about the Battle of Armageddon is that it is the ultimate showdown between good and evil. It is Jesus versus the Antichrist. It is the true Christ versus the imposter Christ, the wannabe Christ, the Antichrist. It is the ultimate showdown of good versus evil, God versus the devil. And then the fourth thing I would say is that good will win in the end. If that makes you happy, say amen. You know, good always wins in the end. No matter what you're going through today, in your life or in your family, I can tell you this on the authority of God's Word, if you're saved, good will win in the end. Romans 8.28 always gets the last word. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. And so good will always win in the end. In the day in which we live, so much evil taking place. 
so much wickedness in the world, and it just looks like that wickedness is winning and God is losing, but friend, that's not happening at all. God is setting it up for one day, a great battle to take place, and in that battle, good will ultimately win. God will defeat the enemy, and evil will be eradicated from this world. Now, having said that, if you'll open your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation, we're studying the actual battle that will take place at Armageddon and what will happen in that Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Megiddo there in northern Israel. So if you're a note taker, I want to give you some things to write down, and we're going to look up quite a few verses today. But the first thing I want to say about the battle of Armageddon is that when it takes place, the stage will have been supernaturally set. God will dry up the Euphrates River, that great river that runs for 1,800 miles through many different countries. God will dry it up during the Battle of Armageddon. In fact, at this point when He dries it up, the river will have turned from water to blood. And at this time, He'll dry the blood up, and the kings of the east will be able to cross that dried up Euphrates River, and they will come to the Valley of Megiddo. Not only will those kings be there, but the Bible says that the kings from all the world will gather. Many will bring their entire armies. Others will bring a representation of their army. But the kings of the earth will come together in the Valley of Megiddo, and God is the one who is supernaturally setting it up. Now, look in Revelation 16 and verse number 16. The Bible says, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. It's the only time in all the Bible that that word is mentioned. Revelation 16, 16, the valley of Megiddo there uh, just below Mount Carmel. And so the stage will have been supernaturally set. Now, it's interesting. God will use Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet to help assemble all these armies together. In fact, when you read what's happening, it looks like that the unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, it looks like they're the ones responsible for gathering all these people there, and yet we know that Satan is never ultimately in control. God is always in control, and so even when it looks like Satan is in control, he's only doing what God is using him to do. The devil is uh, God's uh, tool many times to accomplish his own will. It's an amazing thing where Satan rules, God overrules, and God uses the devil to accomplish his own purposes. Now, look in verse number 13 of chapter 16. John's having this vision. We saw this last week, but let's just look at it again. John said, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. That's a reference to the Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world. Now, what are these demonic spirits doing? Watch this. To gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And so on the one hand, you have Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. They're gathering all these armies to the valley of Megiddo. On the other hand, God, always sovereign, always in control, always running things. Now he's using this unholy trinity to accomplish his own purpose to gather his enemies to this valley where the battle of Armageddon will take place. And so the point that we're making to begin with this morning is that the stage 
will be supernaturally set. Now, as this happens, as these kings from the east cross the dried up Euphrates, as the kings of the whole earth bring their armies to this place, as that happens, the second thing I want us to see today is that the Antichrist himself will arise. Who is the Antichrist? He is a human being inspired and motivated by Satan himself. And yet he will himself personally come to this battle. Is the Antichrist on the earth today? Maybe so, probably so. We don't know that for sure. Nobody knows but God. But if the rapture of the church is going to happen anytime in the near future, we know that the Antichrist is somewhere in the shadows today in all of his wickedness and all of his evil, all of his satanic uh, filling, and he's waiting for his time to emerge on the stage of world history where he will deceive the nations of the world after the rapture of the church gather up his following, and uh, wreak, wreak havoc on the earth. But turn back in the Old Testament to the book of Daniel, because I want us to see a little more specifically how the Antichrist will arrive in the valley of Megiddo. Daniel chapter 11, and I'm going to give you a moment to find this, because this is a fascinating, fascinating passage of Scripture, and it gives us an understanding of what it is that will motivate the Antichrist at the end of the tribulation to leave where he is in one part of Israel, travel to the northern part, to that valley of Megiddo for this great battle. So in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36, and let me just say this, Daniel here is giving an Old Testament prophecy of the end times. That's what this much of the second half of the book of Daniel is about. And in this prophecy, when we come to the 11th chapter, he's talking about a king who was ruling on the earth at this time called Antiochus Epiphanes, but the reference to Antiochus has a double reference and all Bible scholars that I'm familiar with would say this, and the second reference is yet a future event to the Antichrist himself. And so I'm not aware of any evangelical Bible scholar or teacher who would question that Daniel chapter 11 gives us a clear reference, a prophetic insight into the Antichrist. We can't read it all, but let's read a lot of it. Look in verse number 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. So that's talking about the Antichrist. He's going to exalt himself and demand to be worshipped. Verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God for he shall exalt himself above them all. There's some who say that this reference about the Antichrist having no desire for women could mean that the Antichrist will be a homosexual. Some would say, well, it's hard to determine that just from that one reference, and I'm not sure what the significance of that would be, but it is nonetheless interesting. But in verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers. In other words, the Antichrist is not going to worship the God of heaven. 
And uh, he wants to be worshipped himself, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Now let's move down to verse 40 and get into the specifics of what is it that motivates the Antichrist to come to Megiddo. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. And so as we said last week, by this point in the tribulation, those who have pledged their allegiance to the Antichrist are now convinced that they have made a terrible mistake. He has promised peace and prosperity, and just the opposite has happened. The judgment of God has fallen on the earth. The rivers and oceans have turned into blood. People are dying The sun is not shining, the moon is not shining, the stars have fallen out of the sky. And so these leaders on the earth at this point in the tribulation are saying what the Antichrist has promised, he has failed to deliver. And so some of these kings apparently are now turning against the Antichrist himself. And it says they'll come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. So even though they rise up against him, he has more power than they do because he's satanically inspired. Verse 41, he shall also enter the glorious land, that is the land of Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also, the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. Now, watch verse 44. This is very interesting. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Now, what's happening in the, to the east and the north of where the Antichrist is? What's happening is all the nations of the earth are gathering to the valley of Megiddo. Well, it makes sense why this would trouble him because at this point, some of the other kings have already turned against him. And so now he's thinking, now all these who are gathering in Megiddo, they're turning against me. So now we see the paranoia of the Antichrist. Remember we saw in Revelation 16 that the Antichrist is responsible in part for gathering these armies to Megiddo. Now that they're gathering there, paranoia sets in, and he says, they're gathering there to fight against me because these other kings are coming against me. So as we saw last week, confusion and uh, and all these things now are setting in on the Antichrist. So verse 44, you ought to mark this verse. News from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. Assuming that they are turning against him, he's now going to fight against them. And then in verse 45, he shall plant the tents, the tents of his palace between the seas. That is between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, and perhaps a reference even to the Sea of Galilee, and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. And so Daniel is giving a prophecy 100 years before Christ was even born. 
saying that at this point in the tribulation, the Antichrist will come to his end and nobody will help him. And so the point here is that the Antichrist, having heard of this rumblings from the north and the east, will be troubled by that and he's going to Megiddo. So that's the, next, the second thing I wanted us to see. The Antichrist will arrive. The third thing is that as the Antichrist now arrives, everybody else is already there. As the Antichrist arrives, in just that moment, the true Christ will appear. Now, let's settle into Revelation chapter 19 because this is the classic passage in all the Bible about the battle of Armageddon. And now we see that as the stage has been set, as the Antichrist has arrived, it's time for the battle. It's time for the showdown. Good and evil are about to square off. And at this moment, the true Christ will appear. Notice I'm saying the true Christ as, as, as opposed to the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the false Christ. He is the instead of Christ. He is the wannabe Christ. He is the one who is jealous of Christ. He is the one who was in heaven many, many years ago as, a, as an angel, as, a, as an honored angel, as a beautiful angel. And as he was there and seeing all the other angels worship God the Father, worship Jesus the Son, he became envious of that. And he wanted to be worshipped himself. And pride rose up within Lucifer's heart. And God cast him out of heaven. A third of the angels were fallen with him. And so since that time, the Antichrist has opposed Jesus Christ. He's jealous of Jesus. Now look in verse number 11, the vision that John saw. He said, now I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. That's because God always keeps his promises. Jesus is true to his word. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. We don't think of Jesus as a judge. We think of Jesus as a Savior, and he is a Savior. But he's also a judge. And Jesus said in the Gospel of John that God the Father has entrusted all judgment to him. And so at the end, it will be Jesus Christ who will judge. And so heaven is open. It's interesting. This is one of two times in the book of Revelation where in his vision, John saw heaven opened. The first time was in chapter 4, verse 1, when he said, I saw heaven open. That's when John was caught up and taken to heaven. That's a picture of the rapture of the church. So at the rapture, heaven will be open. And here at the second coming for Jesus to come back, heaven will be opened again. Look in verse 19. John said, and I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And so, as the battle is about to start, we have the Antichrist and all his legions in the valley, and now we have heaven is opened, and Jesus is sitting on a white horse, and Jesus is about to leave heaven and descend for that valley of Megiddo. Now, as we think about Christ appearing, as we think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, I want to give you some uh, descriptors, descriptors today, descriptive words that help us to understand how Jesus Christ will appear. And you might want to just jot these down. First of all, it's very important that we see that Jesus will appear visibly. He will appear visibly. John has this vision. He's seeing Jesus. He's on a white horse. Jesus is not sending a delegation. He's not sending an angel. He, and he's not coming invisibly. Jesus is appearing visibly. Now, at the rapture of the church, 
Jesus will only be seen by those of us who are saved. That's why there'll be such confusion on the earth after the rapture. Because the people who are left behind will not have seen what happened. It will be visible to us, but invisible to them. So the rapture of the church is not something that, that will not be a visible appearing to Jesus, to the world, visible to us, but not to everyone else. But turn back to Revelation chapter 1. I want to show you a very important verse. You want to mark this. Revelation chapter 1, and in verse number 7, let me let you find it. Revelation chapter 1, and in verse number 7. The Bible says, Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him. Say that part with me there. Every eye will see Him. Every eye. The eyes of uh, the Antichrist. The eyes of the unsaved. The eyes of all these people in Megiddo. The eyes of people all over the world who will not physically be in Megiddo at that time. Every eye will see Jesus, and they will know that He is the one they should have received, and yet they have rejected Him. Now watch this. Even they who pierced Him, even those Roman soldiers who put the nails in His hands, even that Uh, those Jewish people, those religious Jewish leaders of that time who are responsible in a sense for the crucifixion of Jesus, they will see Jesus. These people will will be in Hades at this time. They're long since dead. And yet from Hades, every eye, not just every eye on earth, every eye on earth, every eye under the earth in Hades will see him and they will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the one whom they crucified, the one whom they turned against, the one whom they rejected was none other than God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. You better believe they'll mourn. They'll mourn because they rejected him. They'll mourn because they crucified him. They'll mourn because they mocked him. And they'll mourn because now they will only meet him as judge. They could have had him as Savior. He offered himself as Savior. But that day's over. And now they will meet Jesus as the judge. And so the first thing is we think about how Jesus will appear. Jesus will appear visibly. The second descriptive word I'd like to give is simply this. Jesus will appear not only visibly, but Jesus in this great battle will appear triumphantly. He will appear triumphantly and victoriously. Look in verse number 12. Back to chapter 19 now, and in verse number 12. His eyes. Now, John is having a vision of the very eyes of Jesus on this horse, coming back to the earth, and yet he sees his eyes. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That is, his eyes are penetrating eyes. His eyes can not only see us, but they can see into us, and they can see through us to what is in our heart, our motives, our inner thoughts, our desires. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head, now watch this, were many crowns, not just a crown, many crowns. Why? Because he's coming back as the conquering king. He's, He's triumphant. He's victorious. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, somebody says, what is this blood a reference to? Well, it could be a reference to the blood he shed on the cross. Most Bible scholars don't think it's that because they say in this context, that doesn't seem to be what it's referring to. Some say that it's a reference to the blood that will be shed in the battle of Armageddon. But if you think about it, 
when he's first coming out of heaven, the blood hasn't been shed yet, so it's probably not the battle of Armageddon. Others say this blood that his robe has been dipped into is representative of the battles that Jesus has fought in the past with evil. And you read all the way through Old Testament times and New Testament times where God did battle Satan and he did put an end, in a sense, to certain forms of evil. And so maybe this blood is the blood from past battles that Jesus has already fought. But nonetheless, his clo- he was clothed with a long robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. When I read that, and, I, and when I read that, it takes me back to John chapter 1, the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. And here it says His name is called the Word of God. And so Jesus is coming back, not only visibly, but He's coming back triumphantly. We hope that today's message has been a blessing to you. You can find this message along with the other messages in John's Revelation series on our website, peacebybelieving.org, under the broadcast tab. John has written a booklet called In the Twinkling of an Eye that is a great companion study to go along with his message from today. You can find it under the booklets tab of our website. We also invite you to like Peace by Believing Ministries on Facebook and follow at PBB underscore broadcast on Twitter. And don't forget to tell your friends about Peace by Believing. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.